Welcome to the Heart of Leaders podcast, where each week we'll be exploring the frontiers of leadership with those who lead from the heart and put their people first, knowing that ultimately all team accomplishments are driven by people. They know that when they take care of their people, their people will take care of customers, lower costs, and drive customer loyalty and company profitability. These leaders believe that for most companies, culture trumps strategy. And culture starts with how you treat your people and how they treat each other. I'm your host, Rick Barrera, head of faculty for the Heart of Leaders training program in Denver, Colorado, where we teach extraordinary leaders how to build and lead high-performance teams who can consistently deliver exceptional results. Welcome back to the Heart of Leaders podcast. I'm your host, Rick Barrera. Today, I've got Todd Musselman in the studio with me. Todd is one of the most impactful personal development trainers I've ever had the pleasure to work with. Todd changes lives. He moves people to action. He makes me rethink everything I do every day. For this episode, I've asked Todd to do a piece of what he calls the owner-victim workshop. To set this up, I'd like to talk for just a minute about mindsets. My mentor, John Lee, pointed out to me that mindsets are sets of ideas that work to help or hinder your ability to meet your goals. The key here is that they are groups of ideas, not just a single idea, but groups of ideas that are self-reinforcing. If you choose the victim mindset, then those ideas reinforce each other to prove to you that you're a victim. If you choose the owner mindset, then those ideas reinforce each other to prove to you that you're an owner. So what is your mindset? Let's ask Todd to share three or four of the more than 18 different distinctions that he shares in his workshops. Okay, Todd, let's start with what you mean by victim versus owner mindset. Thanks, Rick. First of all, it's great to be back. For me, I want to just frame the importance of mindset uh, before we kind of go down that road. I, mindset to me is the number one determinant of performance. I agree with that. That's that's where I start with every everything I do, every every training I ever do, whether it's you know leadership or sales or sales leadership or customer service, whatever. It's all about mindset. It's where it begins. Yeah, exactly. Whether you're a salesperson, a manager, a parent, an athlete, whatever, uh, it all starts with your mindset and. Based on that mindset, I think uh, we can draw a straight line to performance and the effect it has on performance. So I distinguish between two different mindsets. Uh, I use the victim uh, and ownership mindset distinction. I could call it a lot of different things. I use the victim because it's so visceral and icky. <laughs> and, uh, it, you know, no one, no one really loves uh, that association with being in the victim mindset. So it's, it's, it causes a reaction, and I think uh, it can also promote change and, and transformation in people if they, if they start to see themselves in that mindset more often than they see themselves in the ownership mindset. So to distinguish the two, first I'd like to set a context that there's nothing wrong or right about either mindset. It's not a right or wrong, bad or good kind of thing. Uh, everybody that I've ever met and probably ever will meet spends a considerable time in both mindsets and their lives. And so there's nothing wrong with being in the victim mindset, so to speak. It's just not a lot of fun. And the reason it's not very fun is because our energy is diminished, our personal power is diminished, our spirit is diminished, and as a result, our performance is diminished. But there's nothing wrong with it. 
And, and again, everybody on this listening to this has spent and will spend time, including me, in the victim mindset going forward. Uh, when I do the training, one of the things that I'm real clear about, Rick, is my training isn't set up to guide people how not to be a victim. That, that would be an impossible journey, at least for me. My primary modus operandi is to show people how to choose into the ownership more quickly and choose out of the victim mindset more quickly. Because if I'm spending more time in the ownership mindset, by nature, my life is going to be more fun, more productive, and uh, more fulfilling. And it is a choice. Yeah, to me, it is for sure. A hundred percent a choice. And the ownership mindset's distinct uh, from the victim mindset in, in, in that when we're in the ownership mindset, we're on purpose, we're living in our intention, we're in action, we're up to something. It usually has something to do with something bigger than ourselves. And, you know, it's, it's a lot of fun when we're in that ownership mindset, when we're taking um, responsibility for our life. Obviously, the victim mindset is embolized by oftentimes we blame others for our circumstances, for the way our life is going. That's pretty emblematic of the victim mindset. Uh, the ownership mindset is just the opposite. We, we live in the world of taking personal responsibility for the results we're creating or not and using those for our learning and our, and our growth and our improvement. So one of the major distinctions and, and the definer between the two is pretty simple, but victims spend their time reacting to life. That's actually what throws us into the victim mindset is when we start reacting to life. Life is happening to us instead of us in, enforcing life. It's happening to us and we react and it's not a lot of fun. We're ceding control. And again, as a result, our energy drops and, and all those other things along with it. The ownership mindset is all about creating our life from purpose, from intention, from action. And when we're creating our life, uh, it, it occurs in a different way. Our energy is high. Our, our imagination is, is on full throttle. Our spirit's operating at a very high level. And it's, it's a lot of fun. Uh, I, I'm sure everybody on this call can relate to times when they're truly living in the ownership mindset where, you know, life is just fun because they're creating. And one of the things I've noticed in my life and, and those that I've worked with is we're born to create and, and we're at our highest self when we're creating. And I, I, I need no, to look no further than the little people running around our living rooms to notice that they're the most creative people on the planet. And they're also the happiest <laughs> uh, as, as a group of people. And, and the reason they're so happy is because they're creative and, and they're present. And so ownership mindset is depicted by creating our lives and everything in it. So that's the major distinctions. Victims react to life, owners create their lives. And uh, it's from that premise that I start drawing distinctions in terms of language we use. I, I do believe what we say matters a lot. And, you know, you can tell a lot about a person's mindset by the language they're using and how they're languaging their life. So I think language is a fun way to, to illuminate it. It's easy to understand. It's easy to implement. It's easy to enact. Yeah. They, so they say that eyes are the window to the soul, but language is the neon sign that tells others whether you're choosing to be an owner or choosing to be a victim. You got it. That's so, exactly right. So, Extremely accurate. Yeah. Yeah. So, so let's talk about some victim language. Okay. I want to talk about the have to and the, you know, that kind of stuff. Okay, the have to versus the want to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So an example of, of, of the victim mindset in the victim language is the phrases like have to, supposed to, and should. Those are all indicators of somebody who's in the victim mindset around whatever they're having to do or should do or are supposed to do. And the reason that is, is whatever we're in having to do, it, there's a burden, so to speak, aspect to it. It's We're ceding control of that action to someone else or something else. And, you know, whatever you're believing you have to do, if you just notice how you show up being when you're in that mindset, your, your shoulders drop, your, you know, your head drops typically. Oh, and, and as a result, your personal power drops. And if you just think about the last thing you thought you had to do, just notice how you show up. I was recently working with a grandmother who was pretty stuck in this victim mindset. And we were talking about this particular distinction about have to. And I said, you know, what are some things you have to do? And she said, well, I have to spend time with my grandchildren. And I'm like, you have to spend time with your grandchildren. Is that that true? (laughs) Exactly. She says, well, sure. I have to. I said, wow. Okay. Can you imagine how she showed up with her grandchildren, Rick, in the belief that she had to spend time with them? Yeah, not powerfully, I would guess. And I'm guessing all the love and affinity was gone in that moment when you're believing you have to spend time with your grandchildren. Yeah, well, p- people do the same thing at work. You know, I, I have to go to work. and Oh, absolutely. And it's always fascinating. It's always fascinating when they don't have a job, how eager they are to get to work. Right? Exactly. <laughs> you know, oh, i got to totally. find a job. i got to find a job. I have to have a job. Oh, my God. You know, and then they get one. It's like, I have to go to work. <laughs> it's it, you know and it's, again there's nothing wrong with having that thought but just notice how how you show up being when you're in that mindset i, I mean are you powerful are you psyched i doubt it and so converse to that and exactly the opposite of that is i want to i get to i choose to notice what happens when we start operating from that place uh, i get to go get my kids from soccer practice today versus i have to how much more loving are you going to show up being when you get there if you're in the mindset, boy, I, you know, I, I, I had them, first of all. I had my children, so part of that is this whole thing around responsibilities and, and, and activities, and, and I, I get to go get them today. And, you know, I get it. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the have-tos. It's just not very fun or powerful. Fun litmus test that I use for people when they're, you know, in this kind of what do you mean? Uh, what I ask them is what do you do for fun? And, you know, I, I go skiing, I go mountain biking, I go whatever, I play golf. And I, I asked them, well, have you ever had the thought, oh, God, I have to go skiing today? I doubt it. It's always in the want to. It's always in the get to. And as you said, it's always in the choose to, because ultimately that's the, that's the whole thing around the owner-victim choice. And it is a choice, as you already suggested. It's 100% a choice. And so it's powerful when you start noticing where am I using that language and what what would it be like if I if I shifted from a have to to a want to and in just in my internal dialogue who would I be then if I started just shifting it more often even 10% more often that's my brief description of have to versus want to I, I can go more in depth into it but that's a great starting point for the two mindsets yeah very early on somebody tune me into this thing and, and to choosing and, uh, you know, choosing to go to work and choosing to clean up 
dog poop or whatever, <laughs> whatever yeah. it is, what, right? Whatever, no, <laughs> right? Exactly, yeah. And and yeah, and you you know, and you 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 don't do it because you know it's a lovely thing to do always, but you know I choose to clean it up because you know it makes me a better neighbor and my neighbors are happier with me and that enhances relationships and so you know I choose to clean up dog poop. And just getting to that is is so critical. And I mean, just anytime you hear yourself saying "have to," to step back and say, "Do I have to, or or can I actually choose into this?" I think is really helpful. Right. In my my experience, Rick, and, and again, I want to remind the listening audience: I, I don't have the truth. I just have a perspective. But in my experience, um, there's not one thing we have to do as an adult. Not not one. And, and where suffering comes from in the human condition, a lot of it comes from the belief I'm not doing what I want to right now. Right. How could that be true? How could that be true that you don't want to pick your kids up? You're in the car. How could it be true that you don't want to do that? You're in the car, you're driving it. And so now I'm in a fight with reality. And listen, suffering has its place, but I, <laughs> I'm a big believer in suffering as little as possible. And, and a lot of suffering comes from the belief I'm not doing what I want to right now. When you get to work and you say, oh, crap, I really don't want to be here. How can that be true? You're there. It literally cannot be true that you don't want to be there. You might not like being there. I get that. But it can't be true that you don't want to be there or right. you wouldn't be there. Right. And and you can choose out of it. You can choose out of it immediately. Absolutely. Of course you can. Now, obviously, people, you're not being realistic. You're not, you know, come on, this is great in theory. Well, yeah, and it, it is reality. If right. anybody can email me an example of something they've done as an adult that they didn't want to do, I'd love to hear about it, especially in this country. Yeah. Is there other places in the world you could make an argument? Yeah, potentially, but gosh, in this country, are you kidding me? Every, every moment we, we wake up, we have freedom. Yep. And you can choose out of it. You can choose not to go to work. That has consequences. Totally. You may not there like the consequences, consequences, but you can choose them. But the consequences are pretty high when you show up in the mindset of having to be there. Yes. Day course. after day. You're showing up in the victim mindset, and eventually it has a cost. And often the big one. It might be a promotion that you don't get. It might be a marriage that goes away. It could be a relationship with your kids that, is, is, you know, estranged. There's lots of costs with showing up in the victim mindset on a habitual level, no doubt yeah. about it. So, uh, so this is, this is supposed to be a leadership podcast. So, uh, I just want to, I just, I just want to come back to the leadership piece of this. So, you know, when an employee or a partner or a colleague or even a customer says to you, you know, I have to, um, to me, it's always a, it's always a leadership opportunity. Right. So T. Green always Ooh. says that definition of a leader is when you have a chance to impact somebody's life today. Right. And I, and I think every time I hear I have to. Right. Is an opportunity for me to sit down and and ask some questions and and get into a little coaching around this mindset of, you know, do you really have to or are you choosing to? And and, yeah. and kind of talking them through that, because it's it's very empowering when they get around to the to the choosing piece all right let's talk about let's move on here let's let's talk about the the getting from versus the getting through distinction okay one of my favorites for sure so in my line of work i i you know i use two flip charts and on the, on the victim side is 
two words, get through. So when we're in the victim mindset, we tend to get through life. We language our life. Hey, Rick, how are things going at home? Oh, my God. It's a nightmare. Just getting through it, man. Hanging in there like some god-awful moment one after the other, just like a cat. <laughs> right? Just desperately holding on, hanging in there. I mean, oh, my gosh. I could have so much fun with that phrase. But So when we're in the victim mindset, we're getting through life, no doubt about it. We get through our, our work. We get through our family life. We get through our workouts. We just get through life. And there's nothing wrong with it. It's just not very powerful or fun. And we've all met people that literally they're getting through every single day. That's how they language their life. Day after day. How's it going? Well, I'm hanging in there. Get through it. And you're like, wow. Okay. So victims get through their life. Owners get from life. They use life. When we're in the victim mindset, life is using us. And when we're in the ownership mindset, we're using life. And we're, we're taking whatever comes our way and using it for our, our benefit, our learning, our growth, our upliftment. And, you know, it's not always easy. Typically, when something big happens in our life, uh, I've not met anybody that doesn't do this initially. We, we initially get through it, whatever that is, whether it be a you know, loss of a job, uh, loss of a company in our case, or, or you know, maybe a marriage or Gosh, your teenagers are acting out and you get through that phase. You know, so when we when we experience hardships, my my take on that is normally we get through it initially. And then there's a transition point where we can either get from it or we still get through it. And, you know, I've got lots of examples I could use that are, I think, useful to people. Um, I could pick a lot of different stories to illuminate this. I, I think I'll stick with one that's fairly easy to put your arms around. When I was uh, 24, Rick, I had a pretty amazing week in my life. On a Monday, I got asked to play for the U.S. rugby team, which was pretty cool. On Friday of that same week, I I graduated from college, which, given my academic uh, lack of prowess, was truly a miracle. And then on (laughs) Saturday, uh, (laughs) I was playing rugby in Denver, and uh, I was running down the field, and I planted my left foot, and a guy about 280 pounds hit my shin and my foot stayed in the, in the deep grass and my leg dislocated and I severed both arteries internally. And, uh, in one second, my whole life changed. Ouch. And, uh, Did that yeah, hurt? it was a big, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Ouch. that was, a, that was, that would be my, that would be putting it mildly. So, you know, I, I had emergency surgery and I woke up in, in the operating room and in the recovery room. And, and my first thought was, which might sound familiar to some people on this podcast, um, this is the worst thing that's ever happened to me in life as a fair. And man, did I believe that. I was sure that that was true. And from that moment on, I started getting through the experience of having my life altered in one second. I've been an athlete my whole life, and in one, in one moment I wasn't anymore. So now, I'm thrown dramatically into the victim mindset and I'm feeling ginormously sorry for myself. In fact, I I think if you did a chronological study of the pity parties in human history, mine would rank up there as one of the biggest ones of all time. I felt so sorry for myself for quite a while. And um, I I was in the sanctity of my parents' house. And anyway, uh, I was there. And and one of the things about the victim mindset that I think is, is relevant is when we immerse ourselves in the victim mindset, what you might notice is we start pulling other victims into our lives. 
it's a very uplifting club. It's called the victims club. And we start enrolling other victims into our life. And, and so I was doing that. Misery loves company. Misery loves company. And, you know, we were comparing our, our God awful experiences and one after the other. And, and this was going on for about two weeks. And at that time I was staying with my parents and my mom was watching all this go on. And I don't think she'd ever really seen me occur in this mindset before. So it was kind of grossing her out. And about two weeks in, she had enough and I'll never forget it. My mom, as only moms can do, changed my life in about 45 seconds. I remember hanging up the phone with one of my victim friends and my mom strolled into the bedroom and said, gosh, Todd, I I just want to say a few things. Uh, First of all, I am so sorry that this happened to you. You know, I I watched how hard you worked at this and, you know, my heart's broken for for this and, 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 you know, the end of this journey for you. But here's the deal. Um, every time you got on that field, you knew this could happen. And um, she was right. I played college football, got injured out of playing that. So I, I knew the risks. And she said, so maybe maybe it's about time you accepted what happened to you and, and figured out what you're going to do with the rest of your life. Bam, 45 seconds. And then she walked off. Man, was I pissed, Rick. I was so, so mad at her. <laughs> of course you got to be mad at her, because what's the alternative? Yes. <laughs> you exactly. have to be angry with yourself. <laughs> but, you know, but what happened then is I started, by the end of the day, I just started chewing on what she was telling me. And 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 by the end of the day, I, I actually started feeling better about it. I could see what she was saying. And what she was calling me to see is I was 100% responsible for my life and, and everything in it which is a very powerful ownership perspective, obviously. She was the ultimate ownership teacher in that. Yeah. Earl Nightingale has just a great phrase that I love. He says, all men are self-made, but only the successful will admit it. (laughs) Right. Right. Yes, exactly. Exactly. I love that. And so I I went to bed that night feeling a little better. I woke up the next morning and fate or whatever intervened. And long story short, I went over to the closet to get something out of the closet and I pushed back the clothing and at the back of the closet was this thing I played when I was 12 uh, for three months. It was a guitar. And so I pulled that guitar out and I thought, Hmm, maybe this is the next thing for me. Maybe this is what my mom was calling me to, to consider. And so, um, I pulled it out. I started to play. I knew three chords just enough to be dangerous and, and, I played that for a long time. I was on crutches for nine months, so I had a long time to practice. And uh, over time, I got better. I'd, I'd love to tell you my my progress was in a straight line, but had lots of those things called plateaus. And I wanted to break that guitar in pieces about 10 times, but uh, I didn't. And, um, you know, so I persevered through that. And, and as I look back, I think those nine months might have been some of the best nine months of my life. But then fear showed up. And, uh, as I mentioned in my first podcast, I have played small a lot in my life and I've let fear get in the way a lot. And, and I've been seduced by comfort. I've become not such a big fan of comfort in my older age. I, I think comfort is way overrated, but because I think we hide inside of comfort and we, we limit ourselves from growing and expansion. So how it showed up for me is for the next two years, I played in the comfort of my own home. I wanted to, to play out in the bars. I actually thought I might be be good enough to give it a go, but I just didn't have the courage. Uh, fear was gripping my soul. And of course, the same fear for me was uh, I wasn't going to be good enough. So I just played small. And then 
that went on for only two years. Imagine that two years of playing small and then, uh, yeah, you wouldn't have gotten any experience during those two years had you gone out. No, of course. No, no, of course. I can't even imagine what could have happened. Thanks for saying that again, Rick. You <laughs> jerk. But um, <laughs> anyway. Just comes um, from love. Then, uh, right. Uh, after about two years, I took a trip to New Zealand to uh, pursue my other passion, which is fly fishing. And I was in a hut in New Zealand, a backcountry hut. And Fortunately, there was a guitar in the hut, but more importantly, there was beer in the hut. And as a result of those two things, I played my first live song, and, and, and oh my God, it was such an experience. I, one of the things I love about athletics is, is it it's, was my way of connecting to my spirit. Uh, it really called me into being in the moment, and quite honestly, as I after I got injured, I wasn't sure I'd ever connect to my spirit like that again. And then I'll be damned. I played my first live song and, and there it was. And, uh, it was such a profound experience that I played my way through New Zealand, came home, started a band in Denver. And, and, um, for a long time, we were terrible. Uh, we were really bad, but we got better. And about two years after I got back from New Zealand, I'll never forget. I was sitting on a stage in Vail playing for about a thousand people. And I remember thinking, you know, that whole thing with my ankle, as I look back, that might not have been the worst thing that ever happened. In fact, that might have been the best thing that ever happened. Yep. And it was at that moment that I started getting from that injury. Certainly, I've been using it already, but that was the ultimate time where I went from getting through that injury to getting from that injury and using it for my upliftment instead of my suffering. So that's the transition is getting through versus getting from. And... It usually involves a couple things. One is action. <laughs> There's always an action you take to get through, to get from. You, you got to do something. You got to to get out there and, and as, as Nike said, just do it, whatever that is for you. And as a result of that action, um, things opened up. And, you know, I've been a professional musician ever since then and, and have had some of the best memories of my life for sure. And I'm so grateful for the experience of my ankle getting dislocated uh, and, and all that it brought. It wasn't fun to go through and certainly it still has its um, consequences even to this day, but I wouldn't trade it for anything, you know, so that's the get through, get from, and, and, you know, my challenge to everybody on this podcast, where are you getting through life and, and what would it take for you to start getting from those experiences? Cause you can change that experience anytime you want. You can change the meaning of that experience anytime you want. And what I mean by that is for a long time, I made my ankle mean this is the worst thing that ever happened to me and life wasn't fair. And then in one moment, I decided that wasn't true. No, no, this is the best thing that's ever happened to me. But neither one are true. That's the, that's the crazy thing about that. All that happened was my ankle got dislocated. It doesn't mean a damn thing, Rick. Yeah, that's the game you choose to play. It's the game you choose to play. Yeah. Yeah, what matters is what meaning am I putting on this thing? Uh and so, you know, neither one are true, but ma making it mean it was the best thing that ever happened is certainly going to elevate my opportunities in life versus staying in the victim mindset that this is the worst thing that ever happened to me. And, you know, uh, again, uh, if you're getting what I'm saying, there's people on uh, listening on this podcast that are still holding on to some meetings that have happened to them. Again, maybe it's around a job or a divorce or a relationship that didn't go well or whatever. And you're, you're, you're using it for your suffering. And all I'm suggesting is a possibility, not that you need to or should, but you can 
change the meaning you put on that. And when you do, everything will shift. And it, it might might sound uh, Pollyannish to think it's that simple, but, and yet it is literally that simple. Yeah. To me, anyway, you can you can change it anytime you want. So I'm a sailor, and one of the things I love about sailing, there's an old phrase that's the set of the sail and not the force of the gale that determines where you go. Mm. And and mm. I and I love that because when you go out sailing, sometimes the wind comes from one direction, sometimes from another direction, sometimes not very much wind, sometimes too much wind. But there's always a way to set the sails to get where you want to go and to make it work. And uh, it's it's always a good metaphor for me for life that, you know, it's like, okay, what do we got today? Like, whatever it is, we still got to get from here to there. So how are we going to do that? And we adjust things and off we go. I love that. So there's another distinction I want to make here in the get from piece. And, it, and it's, some, yeah. it's, from, it's from some work that I've been doing with uh, one of my colleagues in Australia, Alf Priestley. And it, it goes to the, you know, what you call mining the gold from the difficult experiences. Yes. So the example I like to use a lot is, is the going to the gym, you know, because you have to go to the gym at least three times a week. And so, you know, if you can get through it, then your life will be better. Right? <laughs> so, so, so if you choose to go to the gym and you want to get something yes. from it, you know, what's really interesting is Alf and I invented a little phrase called micro-noticing. And so if you start out and you're out of shape and you, you know, have to go to the gym – the whole thing is just kind of overwhelming and you're dragging and you don't want to be there and you're not really participating very well and, you know, whatever. But what we've discovered is if you sort of focus on micro-noticing, like the moment you get in the car, you go, look at me, I'm going to the gym. <laughs> right? The old me would have never yeah. gone to the gym. The new me is going to the gym. Right? So that just that just take that little moment of upliftment and really focus on it. I go, look how good that felt. I'm going to the gym, right? And then, and then when you get to the gym, you're going to have these other little things, right? So you're going to look around the gym. All the beautiful people will be there. You look at all those people, you go, wow, <laughs> right? That's a little moment, you know, just micro notice that. Right. I want to look like that. Well, good. So let's focus on doing what we got to do. And then, and then, you know, you start into the work, whatever it is. You know, you get on the treadmill or you start lifting the weights or whatever, and, and that might be painful. For me, it's often painful. And, right. and in the, in the literally, moments of— Literally painful. Yeah, yeah, so in the moments of pain, you don't go like, oh, you know, this is awesome. But sometimes I do. I'll say, wow, I really can feel that muscle in a way that I've never felt it before, right? I can micro-notice that little moment of, wow, I didn't know I had that muscle and I, you know, <laughs> behind my knee or under my toe or wherever it is. But wow, there it is, you know, and you micro notice that. And then little things like when you stop, like you put the weights down, there's this, you know, huge relief, right? You go, oh, right. That feels good. So micro notice that and go, what does that feel like when I get to put it down at the end? Wow, I did my set, right? I'm winning. Right. I'm accomplishing. I'm getting stronger. Right. So those 
taking those little tiny moments of positivity inside what might be an otherwise, you know, sort of negative experience, really what it does is it starts to, it starts to energize the brain toward it. And so the more I go, the more micro noticing, the more moments, right? And it begins to shift the experience. So I have more and more and more of those positive moments and fewer and fewer and fewer of the, you know, really painful moments. And then all of a sudden you get momentum and then you're like, I want to go to the gym today. Why? Because it feels good. I get the car. I feel good. Then I'm going to get to the gym. I feel good. Then I'm going to you know, work out and feel good. And then I'm going to drink water. That's going to feel good. Then I'm going to come home and take a shower. That's going to feel good. Right? And you start to pile up the good stuff. And it's the same, you know, at, at, with, at, with a difficult task at work or whatever. If you can chunk it down into pieces and you get a little piece done, look at, you know, look at me. I got a chunk done. Right? So that, anyway, that little chunking and micro-noticing piece is really, really helpful in the getting from. I love that. Yeah. You know, a uh, couple couple thoughts on that. Um, th- there might be some people in the world listening to this that are in this mindset around shedding weight or gaining weight or whatever. And one of the things I notice is anytime I have the thought, I have to lose weight or I have to gain weight, I, I-, I would put about a hundred dollar wager that that would never happen. Right. As long as it shows up in the world of have to, yep. the moment it, it shifts to, I get to, or I will, <laughs> I'm going to, that's a different conversation. But when it's in the world of have to, I just notice it. It just doesn't happen because it's, it's coming from the wrong mindset. The other thing I would say is, there's a big belief, I think, by lots of people that we have to feel like doing something before we actually do it. And I really hear that. But I'll give you an example of my own life. I work out almost every single day. And I would say it's been about 10 years since I felt like working out. I never feel like working out. Ever. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and if, ever. Yeah. I mean, so if I, if I relied on, you know, the feeling to work out, to actually do it, I I would never work out. But what I notice is I get on the machine and something magical happens. The feeling shows up once I start pedaling. Yep. The doing creates the feeling. Here comes the feeling. Yes, exactly right. And so, you know, a lot of times we hide behind, well, I just don't feel like that. I get it, but it doesn't require you to feel like something to do something. Yeah. No, you do it first. My friend, Peter Vidmar is a gold medalist. You know, when you ask him, you know, what did you have to do to win a gold? And he said, well, I, I really, it came down to just one thing. He said, I, I went to the gym every day. I felt like it. And I said, really? And he said, yeah. And, and every day I didn't. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. That's it. That's exactly right. Yeah. No, it's to- I mean, for me, that that's just a, it's a rock solid thing you know, premise, one of the funnier anecdotes to that, I was in a writing class and, and we were talking about writing books and, and, you know, the guy, his basic line was, listen, if you want to be a writer, write. And that was his overriding message, which I paid $500 to hear, but, um, which was pretty funny. But one of the things that at the end, I, I asked him about writer's block and I said, you know, I, I've been challenged by writer's block. And he said, oh, that must be horrible. That just must be terrible. Tell, tell me about that horrible affliction. And then, you know, he started, it was awesome. And he was having me out pretty good. And, and he, he finally said, you know, Todd, let me ask you a question. He said, you know, do you think truckers have truckers blocked? Or do they just get up and drive? It was so awesome. 
He said, there's no such thing as writer's block. My God, that's just a victim's excuse for not writing. If you want to write, write. If you're going to be a writer, you write whether you feel like it or you don't. It was such an awesome depiction of what I'm talking about. You know, yeah, sometimes I, you don't feel like writing, but once you start writing, guess what shows up? The feeling. Yeah. Well, and sometimes it doesn't. You know, I, I had a, I had, yeah. I had, yeah. when, when I started my Overpromise book, I had, I just, this, it was, it was not in a block. It was an affliction of being able to be articulate. And I was writing yeah. day after day after day. I was doing the thing, but you know, the, what was coming out was just horrible. And I, and I just kept going and it took, mm. it took months to get over the hump to where I was saying, oh, wow, and okay, this is really quality stuff. But the, the, the only way to do it is to do it. I mean, there's, there's, no, there's no, you know, magical, like, switch you're going to flip that's no. going to make it happen. No, there is no, there is no magical switch. Yep. And, and the only thing that really helped me was, like, you know, I had a lot of writer friends, and I just kept telling them, I said, my God, I'm just, you know, what I'm writing is just horrible. And they said, great, keep going. <laughs> yeah, keep, keep going, right? <laughs> That's it. I mean, you know, and 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 it became a bestseller, right? So, uh, I mean, uh, obviously, it worked in the end, but it's uh, it's tough. Yeah. All right, let's let's do let's do committed, interested. Okay, so the distinction, the, you know, in the in the trainings I do, this is certainly one of the more popular ones that I talk about because I think it's so easy to relate to. And, and the distinction is the distinction between being interested versus committed. Yeah. You busted me on this one big time. Last time we met, it was, yeah. it was not, it was yeah. not fun. I've had a year of suffering since you busted me on this one. <laughs> yeah. Well, so and maybe, maybe, maybe you could tell how that, that occurred and we could use you as the example on this one, but simply put, um, you know, interested is, is, it sounds great being interested in things. The problem is it creates one hell of a lot of suffering in the human experience because whatever we're interested in that we're not actually doing, there's only one outcome and that's upset and disappointment and sometimes suffering. The other day I was uh, fishing on a local river here and minding my own business. I turned around, there was a guy watching me fish, which was a little odd and I didn't, you know, it's happened maybe a couple of times before. And so I just, started fishing again, turned around 15 minutes later, he's still watching. I'm like, okay, that's a little weird. <laughs> uh, but I went back fishing and I turned around about 10 minutes later and he's still there. I'm like, okay, this is something's going on. So I walked over to the guy about my age and I said, is everything okay? He goes, Oh no, no that was awesome. I, he said, I've had a fly rod for about 15 years and I'm, I'm really interested in, in fly fishing. I'm just, I'm like, Oh, I felt so bad for that guy, Rick, because the moment he goes home and he looks at that fly rod that he's not using, what happens to his spirit? Yeah. Just diminishes. It just drops. Yeah. And so the question is, you know, and and all you need to do to go to commitment is pick the fly rod up, go to the river and start fishing. Now he's committed. Yeah. So you're talking about, you're talking about committed action. So I'm interested, but I don't take any action. Yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah, right. It sounds good, but there's no, there's no, there's no result other than suffering. <laughs> and so, one of the, you know, the, the deep dives in, in terms of self introspection is this question: What are you interested in? What are you committed to? And who are you committed to? And I mean, really committed. Are you committed to your jobs? Are you committed to your marriage? Committed to your partnerships? To your yeah. kids? 
Are you committed to doing whatever it takes to make it work? Yeah, whatever that is. And I hear a lot of talk about being committed, but my experience is that people are still not quite getting that distinction because they're fairly big. Committed means I'm willing to do whatever it takes to, to make that thing go. And most of life, I think, comes down to that one word, Rick, what am I willing to do? Not what am, can I do, what should I do, what could I do, but what am I willing to do to create an amazing outcome or amazing life? Because it usually does come down to that one word, what am I willing to do? Am I, am I willing to be committed? Am I, am I willing to you know, cast aside all the fear that's in the way? And it's always fear that's in the way. That's what has us being interested but not committed. Lots of people are interested in, in you know, being healthy, and yet they're not committed. Lots of people are interested in earning more money, but they're not committed. Fear gets in the way. We could just keep going on and on down the line. And so it's really good to ask yourself in a really honest and fierce way, what am I interested in? What am I committed to? And who am I committed to? Am I really committed? And what would it take to commit? Because being interested just, it, it just doesn't push the ball. You know, I, unfortunately, I know a lot about interested versus committed. I, as I might've said on my other podcast, I was interested in doing this work for only 15 years. <laughs> Imagine suffering for 15 years. I, I'm truly, I wanted to do this. I was interested in it, but fear got in the way. And, and, and so I played small for 15 years and I didn't, didn't take the steps necessary to actually do this thing. And um, once I finally committed, everything changed and, and, and doors started opening up that I'd never seen before, but they don't open up when you're interested. They only open up when you're committed. And I'm guessing everybody listening to this understands what I'm talking about. You can probably cite something in your own life where you went from interested to committed and doors started opening up. You never even saw, but they never open up when you're interested, only when you're committed. And so, you know, whatever that is for you, I would just welcome you to consider taking an action and really committing to whatever that is that's, that's, you know, has you in the world of being interested and just commit and watch what happens. Yeah. Well, where you busted me last year is I, you said, how are you doing? And I said, I'm overcommitted. And you said, that's not possible. You can be overinterested, right. but you can't be overcommitted. It forced me to sit down and really look at what I was committed to and dropping the stuff I wasn't committed to, which is, you I know, enormously that. freeing. It is. It is so, and it's a great segue into pleasing versus serving. Which is, which is the next distinction. Let's go there. <laughs> this is our last one. Well, I mean, I, I think, yes, because I, I, I want to be clear about what, you know, what has us, quote unquote, overcommitting. Again, to me, there's no such thing as overcommitting. There's th- you can absolutely overpromise, but you and can't overdeliver by nature. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Right. <laughs> Got to get the the plug in there. (laughs) Right. So, I mean, you know, why do we, why do we overpromise? Why do we, why do we say yes to too many things when we know we can't do them? And and to me, it's all about pleasing. See, I call that lying. Yeah. Well, see, I I have, I have a formal definition of overpromise in my book, but to me, that's lying, right? If you say, I'm going to say you're going to do something, you don't do it. You're lying. Exactly. You're lying to yourself mostly. And yeah. to others, but it's obviously. not powerful. It's very just it's very destructive. Yeah, and 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 so 
for me, awareness is the first point of choice. So I can't choose out of lying, so to speak, until I'm aware of why I am doing that. And so now I'm going to speak to the causality of why we overcommit or overpromise. And it's all about validation that we're good enough. It's about pleasing. Pleasing is driven by the desire to be good enough. If I please enough people and I say yes to enough things, maybe, just maybe, it'll answer that question I've been asking myself my whole life, am I good enough? The problem is you cannot please enough people to answer that question because the question has no answer. But no one ever told us that. And, and so pleasing is driven by the desire to be enough. And so we do some pretty crazy things to, to try to answer that question. And then we please in a lot of different ways. And so for the ways that we please, for the manifestations of pleasing, that I see a lot in the work that I do, Rick, is these four manifestations. One is we kiss people's ass to gain favor. And ironically, I think that's the least common way we please people. It seems like that's the definition of pleasing is kissing somebody's ass. But I, honestly, I, it does happen, of course, probably more than I'm even willing to look at. But I don't think it's the most common way that we please. Another manifestation of pleasing is we allow people to treat us in a way that doesn't work for us. That's a very, very pleasing thing to do. And it's probably the most common way that pleasing occurs in the human condition by allowing people to treat us in a way that does not work for us. It goes on every single day. And, and some of you might think, well, how is that pleasing? Well, it's pleasing because you're not willing to serve that person by saying what's so for you. You're not willing to serve not yourself willing to confront. by saying what's so for you. No. And so it's a very, you just don't want to rock the apple cart. I, I don't want to upset anybody. So I'll just please them by not saying anything, even though they're treating me in a way that doesn't work for me. And, and so that's a very common way of pleasing. Another way that we please is we say yes to everything because we'd be terrified to say no to something because that would mean that I'm not enough. I can't handle it all. So God, I'll just say yes to everything and then I'll watch my life completely unravel as I try to do all these things that I can't. And now I'm out of my integrity. And now there's a huge cost. It's called stress and overwhelm and all these great Function, dysfunctional um, diseases that occur for that, us. That never happens in the workplace. Oh, no. Heavens no. Or at the <laughs> home. <laughs> I mean, are you kidding? A lot of parents, including moi, have pleased our kids by saying yes to too many things. And, and then we get in, in, a, in a whole a bind around that. And, and now, instead of serving our kids by saying no, we please them. Um, the last manifestation that I think is fairly common as well is uh, we don't hold people accountable. That's a very pleasing thing to do. And it gets us in a lot of trouble. We think we're doing people a favor by not holding them accountable. Oh, we'll just, you know, get them next time. Well, it's okay this time. But my experience is that uh, holding people accountable is the highest service we can do for people. It's, it's really a powerful expression of love when we hold people accountable. And it's a huge expression of fear when we don't. And so here we are back to that simple choice, the vital choice between choosing love over fear. And, and all of these manifestations are pleasing. All pleasing is driven by fear. And the fear is I'm not enough, so I'll just please. And serving is all driven by love. The genesis of service comes from love. 
loving thyself enough, loving others enough to, to be of service to them. And so my task for everybody or my challenge to everybody on, on this podcast, what if you moved into serving 10% more often in your life? Who would you be then if you started serving people in your life 10, 15% more often? What would happen to the quality of your life? And as a result, choosing love over fear 10%, 15% more often, because again, all service comes from love. All pleasing comes from fear, at least to me. And I think pleasing is probably the most dysfunctional behavior we have as human beings. It's, it's the most destructive behavior. And the funny thing is we're all experts at it because we had one or two of these things called parents. And we grew up believing and experiencing that pleasing had a giant reward. We got things when we pleased our parents. The problem is that no one ever told us that when we become adults, pleasing becomes very needy and creepy. It's just God awful. It's horrible. It's so icky. And, and again, the, the neediness is around being enough. And so if you're on this podcast, listening to us, and you are an identified pleaser, I have two words for you that I would love for you to write down. Stop it. Just stop it. Stop pleasing and start serving and watch what happens and powerfully say no more often. Do not allow people to treat you in a way that doesn't work for you. Hold people accountable. And, and, you know, I don't think, I doubt anybody on this is a ass kisser, but if you are, that, that's not a very powerful manifestation. <laughs> well, I see this in the workplace all the time. And the manifestation that I see most often is when we are doing things, either individually or as a team, that we know are not working, and we don't stop. Right. And we don't stop and go, time out. You know, I mean, I always like the, the analogy of the assembly line, you know, where Toyota had them, you know, you pull the chain, right? You pull the big red handle and you stop the, you know, you stop the whole assembly line. You go, hey, <laughs> we're not building a quality car here. We just got to stop. And, you know, yeah. and Toyota really, you know, they really promoted that, right? Stop, stop it if it's not working and let's talk about it and let's figure it out as a team and let's get it right, and then let's make a quality car. And, you know, that reluctance to pull the big red handle because you go, well, you know, maybe I'm wrong, and, you know, they're smarter, and they're the boss, and they make more money, and, you know, whatever. And, you know, but if you know you're right, you know, pleasing does not help the organization. You're just continuing to make, you know, terrible cars or terrible, you know, widgets or whatever it is you're doing or serving your customer much less powerfully than you could. So it's, you know, it's about speaking up and standing up and declaring a breakdown and saying, this isn't, this isn't working. And there's just much too, much too little of that. Right. I think you, you certainly remember this from the trainings that we've done together, but one of my, I think more simple, but powerful phrases to remember is silence is acceptance and silence in, in, in many cases is just a manifestation of pleasing. And so what you were just talking about is when we remain silent about something that's not working for us, we're pleasing inside of our meetings, inside of our, our partnerships and our marriages with friends. And, and, you know, so it's okay to be silent about something that's not working for you, but the moment you do, you forfeit the right to bitch about it. Yep. Well, but it's, you're choosing fear. You're choosing fear instead of love. Yes, totally. 
yeah, you definitely are choosing fear over love. And, and you know, listen, Rick, I, I, again, I've illuminated many times. I've chosen fear over love many, many times. And the result is always the same. You can hear the sucking sound in my spirit every time I do it, every single time. And, you know, that's not a fun thing. Uh, I'm, you know, and I'm, I'm getting better at it, but I still, I still let fear, uh, rule of the day on occasion. And, and again, it's an incredibly predictable outcome when I let fear roll the day. And it's an even more powerful and predictable outcome when I choose love over fear. Yeah. Well, Todd, I'd love to do about a million more of these, but, uh, we're out of time for today. Can, can I get you to come back and do some of your other work with us? I'd be thrilled. I, I really, really appreciate it. And, um, absolutely. I would, I would love that. We, we were talking about I was talking to Todd earlier today, setting this up, and um, we were talking about doing something on marriage. So I'd be interested in some feedback from the listeners, whether they really want us to spend time on that or not. But I thought it was a fascinating idea, and I'm going to pursue that with Todd unless unless you all tell me not to do that. So, Just to provide a little little context, the reason that I, I, I offered that up is because I, I, as a coach, I work inside of distressed marriages quite a bit, and I'm glean some things um, from those experiences that might be useful to some people listening in regards to creating a powerful marriage going forward. Well, and, you know, the old phrase, happy, happy wife, happy life, uh, you know, happy husband, happy life, same, same deal. But, uh, you know, and the, the, the more, yeah. the more blissful your, your relationships are, the more powerful you can show up at work and, and uh, the better leader you can be and all of that. So I, I believe in treating the whole human. So that's why I thought it'd be a great idea to have Todd come back and do that. So give us some feedback. Let us know uh, what you think about that. And with that, I think we're out, Todd. Thank you so much. Thanks, Rick. This is Rick Barrera, and I'd like to invite you to join us for our Heart of Leaders training program in Denver, Colorado. You'll be in a small class of just 30 or so participants hanging out with and learning from our world-class faculty. If you're enjoying the Heart of Leaders podcast, you'll love the Heart of Leaders training program. Come and get your questions answered, meet the coolest people in business today, and learn how to get the extraordinary business results we've been talking about on this podcast. Call us today at 858-248-3162 or visit our website at heartofleaderspodcast.com. We believe that Heart of Leaders is a movement started by boomers, accelerated by Gen Xers, and demanded by millennials. To learn more, find us online at heartofleaderspodcast.com, where we blog, post articles, and book reviews, and respond to your questions. We invite you to join the conversation.